0: got the need, the need to podcast. This is episode 28, Mission Impossible 3 from 2006. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us tonight, we have back from a couple episodes of Cruise Club ago, we have Mr. Dan Colon. Hello, Dan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for being back. And as we continue to go to Mission Impossible movies with a new director, a new hired hand, hired gun, we are bringing in our own hired hand, hired gun to talk about the movies. So welcome, Mr. J.J. Abrams, apparently Dan Colon. (laughs) Is that who I am representing in this episode? In a way, absolutely. <laughs> okay, sure, I'll take it. I do not want to talk about another movie that J.J. Uh, Abrams has made recently because I feel like we could get derailed. And I also don't actually have thoughts about that. But I will say, I am so tired of J.J. Abrams giving me not nearly enough Carrie Russell in his goddamn movies. Like, why are you going to put her in a movie for five minutes and not give me, like, an hour of Carrie Russell?
1: Because it's reminding you to go watch all of Felicity. That's where you I find your character. Yeah, I had, I had oh, the
2: exact same reaction. And I had to remember that this was before the Americans, correct? So, like, yes. Carrie Russell was just sort of dug up out of obscurity. She hadn't really done much at this point, And we get, like... Well,
0: she did Felicity. She, she starred in all of Felicity that J.J. J. Abrams created.
2: Sure. But what I'm saying is when, when this movie came out, she hadn't had done much recently. Oh, recently.
0: Yeah, okay. Right. So
2: we had gotten, like, 15 minutes of Carrie Russell and, like, what the hell? But we, we look at that now in 2019 eyes and we've gotten how many seasons of The Americans, we've gotten countless other things. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. But at the time, yeah, I don't know that people were yearning for more Carrie Russell. Maybe they were. I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, looked, it looks like Felicity ended in 2002 and then she was in a movie called The Upside of Anger and then a TV movie called The Magic of Ordinary Days, then a TV miniseries one episode and then she was in this. So like basically in the four years between those things she was in like two-ish, two or three things. So yeah, not really mm-hmm. a lot. And then she would go on to be in uh, Running Wow, That was, wow, man, there's like a gap in my, uh, oh, Waitress is the next year. Okay, so she, this might be sort of her return to Hollywood in a way. Right. Before we go further, not that we're really talking about Mission Impossible 3, but before we talk (laughs) about Mission Impossible 3, let me give a quick plot rundown. Again, this feels like a kind of simple plot, but also wildly complex just because it is Mission Impossible 3. But here is what this movie is about, if you have not seen it, directed by J.J. Abrams. The movie starts in a way that is my least favorite thing in all movies. We are in the climactic scene. Philip Seymour Hoffman has a gun to Michelle Monaghan's head as saying, to tom cruise give me the rabbit's foot don't know what that is spoiler never know what the rabbit's foot is really yeah, other than right. maybe the anti-god gun to michelle monahan's head give me the rabbit foot or she dies we don't know who she is clearly tom cruise cares about her we then flash cut back to their engagement party and tom cruise is getting married to a woman that we have never met before in the mission impossible Miss, mission impossible movies she is a nurse jules julia played by michelle monahan Uh, He gets a call to take a, quote, a trip to Mexico, finds out that one of his students, because now Ethan Hunt is sort of retired, and he's more of uh, an instructor than a field agent, one of his, maybe his first student, one of his favorite students, Kerry Russell, this agent named Lindsay, has been taken as she's tried to track down Philip Seymour Hoffman, and so he has to go save her. So along with Maggie Q and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, who Mike would go on later to play Elvis and I think win awards for some Elvis miniseries or something, I don't know, go check out Viva Pod Vegas, and Luther, Ving Rhames, they go and they try to, they get sent to Europe to find the rabbit's foot, which Simon Pegg in this movie, he's here for the first time, thinks might be the anti-god. Cruz gets married before they go. They go to Italy, they go to the Vatican, where Philip Schumer Hoffman and his buyers are there to broker this deal for the rabbit's foot. They steal the rabbit's foot, or they steal the coordinates for the rabbit's foot. We find out via a postcard which has some technology embedded in it that Kerry Russell thinks that Lawrence Fishburne who is their boss has been working with Philip Seymour Hopp and sort of betraying the IMF betraying the American people later we find out that it's actually Billy Crudup sort of the the mid-level boss because of course it's going to be Billy Crudup like how do you in what movie would Lawrence Fishburne be the bad guy over Billy Crudup but Either way, I digress. Running with the devil? Check out the Cage Club Awards, which we posted a couple weeks ago, where Mike gave some love to Lawrence Fishman in that movie. They think that Ethan is a rogue agent because of what he's... Basically because it's a Mission Impossible movie, and Tom Cruise does things that don't exactly align with the IMF, which I've learned in this movie is the Impossible Mission Force, which is... Mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but he's always got to be on the run for a while, at least. So he gets arrested, and they bring him in and Billy Crudup's like, here, I'm going to tell you where the rabbit's foot is, because by this point, Phillips Grumhoffman has abducted, Michelle Monaghan, he has abducted Jules, and Cruz needs to, has, he has 48 hours to get the rabbit's foot so he can get Jules back. Who boy, they go to Shanghai, and he gets the rabbit's foot. We don't see him actually get the rabbit's foot. We're just outside as Maggie Q and Jonathan rhys Myers are basically praying for his success. There's a huge long foot race atop a roof along a river. Ethan finds Jules, but then Philip Seymour Hoffman kills her. Or this is before I don't know. He kills her, but then <laughs> we find out that it's not. It's, God damn it's it, the, it, this is so overly complex. <laughs> but then he kills Julia he kills Jules, but it's not actually Jules, it's his his own teammate. This is not helping anybody who has not seen the movie, I just realized. Anyway, in the end, they save the day. Tom Cruise says a line, I have a charge in my head, I'm going to die unless you kill me, which is Super cool. Jules kills him, defends them, brings him back to life. Dies and comes back. I couldn't believe it. They kill Billy Crudup. They get the rabbit's foot. They go back. They give Dolores Fishburne. Everybody is happy. Tom Cruise gets accommodations. Tom Cruise is like, what's the rabbit's foot? He's like, if you promise me you'll stay, I'll let you know. And he's like, sorry, man, going on my honeymoon. And they just leave. And that's the end of the movie. So basically, bad things happen. Tom Cruise saves the world. Everybody's Happy in the End. That's kind of the short of it, but I'm so sorry that that did not actually help anyone who has not actually seen this movie.
2: I have to wonder how many people are going to listen to this specific episode who have never seen this movie.
0: Well, I think that's a question. Why would anybody listen to any of these unless you've seen the movie? But I I mean, there, I'm sure there's people out there who have found this for one reason or another who have listened to every episode of Cruise Club. I don't know. Email us, run at cageclub.me <laughs> if you've not seen it. If, if these plot summaries help, I don't know that they do, but it's a Mission Impossible movie like he does yeah. crazy things he does spectacular stunts and dare death defying you know special effects and whatever in the end the world is saved except in this one he gets married so that's a difference
1: <laughs> yeah you know he's he's taken he's given a mission he has to form a team he has to save the world like it's kind of a mad libs from there on out which is fine yep. because like those core ingredients that they have to this franchise, I feel, like, works so well just, you know, on their own. Uh, and I just, like, everybody that they've got for the team is great. All the, I love everybody they always picked for the villains. I mean, it's got a formula. Like, Bond has a formula. Like, every couple films, you know, sort of the same situations over and over again. But we don't care. I love that stuff, you know, because it's always a new Bond or something going through old situations. So, you know, out of the three so far, Joey, you might be surprised to
0: hear this is my least favorite. No, I'm not surprised, because I was actually just going to mm-hmm. ask you where that is, but I yeah. want you to finish finish your thoughts i want to yeah. i have a thought about that too
1: i still like it but i think that's what i what, what i'm coasting on is sort of my love of the last 2 of i've been watching them so soon together because this feels this feels sort of uh i want more confusion i want more i want more stuff going on i feel like it might be a little too bare a little too because this down. is pretty straightforward right a little too straightforward
0: like, perhaps yeah my my summary did not really i don't think explain but this is a pretty straightforward movie. it's a short movie it's like it's you know, without credits, it's under two hours. I think a lot of the conversation that you and I had with Austin Wolf-Southern, who was on our Mission Impossible 2 episode, was about how that one sort of had like a weird rap for being by far the worst one. But like, of the two, like of the three, I think the first one still is leaps and bounds above the other two. Mm-hmm. I think that this one I have very slightly above two. But like, as far as I'm concerned, they're kind of the same to me. Like, they're both good. I enjoy watching both, but I don't think one is necessarily way better than the other or way worse than the other. I think they're about the same... I know that we're going to get to Fallout, which might be my favorite Tom Cruise movie. We're going to reach really, really, really high highs, and I'm excited to watch Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation and Fallout. Like, I'm excited to get to those, but I was, I'm right there with you, Mike. I think that this yeah. is not, you know, it's not leaps and bounds above two in a way that other people either condemn two for being or... Or mm-hmm. praise three for being, I guess.
1: For me, what it comes down to is basically the style between the three films. Like, I just, I think this is just a lesser crafted production. It feels more rushed. Like, I don't exactly like the way it, it looks in his shot. And, style. and so I think for those reasons alone, like, it, it just is a little under two for me because I just think one and two look so incredible and have such amazing shots and sequences, whereas this one doesn't really, JJ doesn't really measure up to John Woo, And, you know, I don't feel bad for saying that at
0: all. There's a lot of trivia that I will get to towards. The end of the show about not, you know, disclaimers for why this isn't as good as it could be or should be or whatever, but there were a lot of like weird delays. And, you know, JJ was not the first pick in terms of director. And it seemed like there was a lot of production issues and different directors attached and different writers attached. And uh, like what we saw with the War of the Worlds thing with Cruz jumping on Oprah's couch, like there's some weird kind of personal stuff. And there's like Scientology mm. stuff that I'll get to. So, like, there's a lot of things behind the scenes here. In sort of in spite of all that, I think this is a very good movie, but I sort of have, like, reasons or like again, I don't know if it's the right word, but disclaimers why it maybe is as sort of not as put together maybe as the first two? I don't know. But Dan, without going too far down the rabbit hole into the movies that we have not gotten to yet, do you have the first two in your head fresh enough to sort of, where does this stack compared to the first two? Do you have a favorite of the first three in this franchise?
2: As you guys were talking, I pulled up the, uh, I have a list on Letterboxd where I ranked all of the Mission Impossibles. I couldn't remember specifically where I put Mission Impossible 3. I I just re-watched it to discuss it with you guys, and I had always remembered enjoying it more than I should have, and I did rank it second to last above Mission Impossible 2. But I don't think that that is indicative of how I feel about it as a whole. I think that the first Mission Impossible is far and away the best Mission Impossible. Oh, so that's your number one It is my number one overall. It has has not changed. The last time I rewatched that, I I just couldn't believe how, how tight and incredible that was as a spy thriller. Now, as an action movie, it's not so great, right? It was marketed as an action movie. It's not really an action movie. But I think that overall, it is a more effective film Than the others are, as the series progressed, you know, it it became a a franchise of of action. You know, what what can we throw Tom Cruise off of? What can he run through or off of or whatever? You know, it became about these stunts. So I think that first one is still
0: far and away the best. Now, when you describe, you have it next to last, but you don't think that it's necessarily indicative of like how much you enjoy watching it. I don't want to give a plug to another podcast that I talk about too much. Sure. But like we say with the Fast and the Furious, with Too Fast, You Forever, like even a bad one of those movies is still a movie that I'm going to enjoy watching more than most other movies. Like this is not, I don't think a bad. Like I don't think I think it'd be hard pressed for people to say like this is a bad movie. But in the grand scheme of Mission Impossible movies, I can see where you're saying like it doesn't stack up, it doesn't compare. But it's still a fun movie that is worth watching, and enjoyable to watch, just because of the nature of these movies and the spectacle and sort mm-hmm. of the spy nature of all of this, all this sort of like it's just it's a fun
2: movie. Right. I think that so so just to kind of give a, a, a broad overview of my, my view of the franchise. I think the first one, again, really tight spy thriller. Um, and then mm-hmm. John Woo did a great job with the action in, in MI2, but the story really just loses me. And I don't think that that was as strong as it could have been. When I saw Mission Impossible 3, I think J.J. Abrams took the best of the first Mission Impossible and the second Mission Impossible and then sort of created this, this new thing that could satisfy the people who wanted the spy stuff, people who wanted cool gadgets and whatnot, and kick-ass action. I don't think it does either as well as the first two, but it it reaches a happy medium that overall left me really satisfied. And I think that it's what J.J. Abrams does is he takes these franchises (laughs) that have fallen to the wayside in some way, revises them or, or gives them new energy, and then sets them loose, right? So he's done it with Star Trek, he's done it with Mission Impossible, and he's done it with Star Wars. He's a good guy to bring things back to center and then give them a launching off point to find themselves a little more. And I think that that's why I rank three second from last, because it's since three, the franchise has really found its way and it's become better and more entertaining Using the formula that J.J. Abrams created with Mission Impossible 3.
1: Yeah, no, and I see that too, you know, I see how it's like the best, sort of trying to take the best of both worlds and like give you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah, I don't think
2: that first Mission Impossible is a franchise film. Like, we're not going to build no. a franchise off of that. I think it's a very solid thriller, but in order to create the franchise, I think J.J. Abrams had to step in and then take what's best from both of those first two and then go off.
1: Yeah, and I do remember when this came out, like, people saying, oh, look, like, J.J. sort of saved it, or not saved it necessarily, but just saying, like, it's, better now or like going forward, like people want more of this Mission Impossible. They maybe sort of got a little lost in the stuff that I preferred with all the espionage. But like, yeah, it just speaks more toward a mass audience of of just like, we just want the action. But I think after these are my favorite ones where they really like take that formula and it seems like they're trying to chart something in advance, right? And like it really, every those feel more like the ongoing serial, as opposed to like a single movie or something like that, and so I do love where uh, they take it from here, and it does feel sort of like um, right. not a not a like a, maybe a soft reboot or something.
0: I think what's kind of interesting about the serialized nature, like I agree with you, like they they want to have movies like aside from like aside from Luther and Tom Cruise, like there's no continuation, right? Like everybody is kind of new from movie to movie so far mm-hmm. in the first three, and they wanted like we talked about with Mission Impossible two, they wanted Fandie Newton to come back for this one. She chose to spend more time with her family, so they kind of rewrote her character, and then they, I think, combined characters and dropped characters out, and there's a whole bunch of, like, who almost was. So I think they tried to have a little bit more serialized nature here, but then that didn't happen. And then between different rewrites and stuff like that, I think it just kind of became its own thing. But now we know that Jules, spoiler for future Mission Impossible movies, is kind of an important character for the rest of the franchise, right? Like, she is, he's North Star in a lot of ways, right, even as things happen in their relationship or whatever she is kind of the through line and then now that we have luther we have benji yeah, the benji. team is in place too right and so it's kind of a, a combination of a couple different things maybe just making them a little bit closer together because it's been 10 years now since the first one and then in the next 10 years we're gonna have another three so like it you know it just sort of feels like they're making them a little bit closer together and so maybe that helps things i don't know but i i do agree with you mm-hmm. that it's it becomes more of a continuation as opposed to just like, oh here's another mission.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's exciting because it, it proved that this can work as just an action franchise if you want it to, right? So like, you know, the first two movies are different in that regard in that it's much more spy stuff. And this has it, but it's this is much louder and there's way more like camera activity, like kinetic activity just in general in this film and right and it just goes like, Oh, you could do a one episode of this where it is like this and then get back to sort of seeping in more espionage down the line with the other films as they do and they find like the nice balance along the way
0: yeah i mean i guess it is also in another way like the fast and furious franchise where like tokyo drift is its own thing and too fast is kind of its own thing and then basically yeah, and by the time four, four five is roll the around, one. right <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. just like here we're gonna start like these all mean something now there are you know villains are linked and the stories are linked and the characters are the same as opposed to individualized stories within a world we're going to tell this overarching narrative Over the course of several movies that each stand alone, but they also play a bigger role in the grand scheme of things, which I think is a. I think that's just maybe the ever evolving nature of a franchise that isn't a horror franchise, maybe? Just, you know, instead of just having new people to kill, it's just, how can we do more with these? Like how do we have like the Marvel movies, how do we have them be on their own but also contribute to the bigger picture? How do we do that with the Fast and Furious? How do we do the Mission Impossible? So movie franchises that really aspire to greatness in their own way, I think, no disrespect to horror franchises or whatever, I think it's it's a natural progression of things to to do what the Mission Impossible movies do. so. But Dan, let's start with you. If you had to pick a favorite moment or character or scene or line or whatever, what is your favorite part of Mission Impossible 3? One of my favorite things
2: about this movie is the uh, addition of uh, Simon Pegg as Benji. One of the things I love about this, this, this franchise from 3 forward is how much it does classic James Bond better than James Bond does these days. I'm like a huge James Bond fan. You know, when you look at those old movies, you know, it's fun to watch the 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 silly gadgets and you got Q who's always got he's always got the thing for the for the situation, right? And and Benji, as a character, just sort of cuts through a lot of the drama of this franchise in a way that makes the movie really fun and always provides this, you know, funny quips or uh, a fun gadget that will come in handy in some weird, outrageous way. Uh, I really love Simon Pegg in this because I think without him, the movie, it can it's still fun, but I think that it needs, you, you need to be able to laugh at it in order to to really fully enjoy it. And I think he really brings that energy to the cast that allows you to, uh, to, to have that sort of fun with it, if that makes sense.
1: Totally. Like, I, I love him in this, too. Like, I, I was pretty shocked that he popped up in this at the time because I think I had, I mean, American audiences had, this is their introduction to Simon Pegg. Like, I think we might have known him from Shaun of the Dead, like, maybe a year or two before this. And, like, I didn't even really know about that show, Spaced, I don't think, until, like, seeing this movie. So he just felt like a natural fit, you know? And he's, like, sort of the cue, but not really. He's, like, their go to techie, I guess. Like, I love that, too, like, how tech heavy this franchise is and to find like he's a, the, a hacker maybe better than luther or something like that is like a pretty exciting character to bring in here
2: the only version of this character that we've had prior to this is uh emilio estevez in mission impossible <laughs> one you know and yeah he's kind of funny you know with the with the gum like don't chew it simon Pegg just has a natural comedic timing and i think that that really adds this fresh, funny element in this movie that works in favor of it, doesn't stand out, in a bad way you know like i don't know what it is i think he overall just pushes the tone in just the right direction so we can take all the drama seriously but still have fun and laugh
0: now how would you feel if the benji character was played by ricky gervais who almost was cast in this role oh uh, are you having a laugh are you serious <laughs> oh my gosh i used to be a big fan of ricky gervais and then i feel like uh, as a culture we kind of got tired of him and <laughs> you know i think <laughs> the least the did yeah <laughs> back in 06 I think he still would have been good but I I'm glad that Simon Pega stuck around because I really like him, and I think that he works so well in this world. But there was also a joke that when he was becoming after Shaun of the Dead was such was so successful, Simon Pegg was asked if he'd pursue a career in Hollywood because that was you know sort of an independent British movie, and he said he laughed and said, "It's not like I'm going to be in Mission Impossible 3 which you know, where he wound <laughs> up, which I think is kind of funny. You would look at him or a guy like Ricky Gervais and be like, "Oh, they don't fit in this world," but like you need the people, the man in the chair, right? Like you need the support, and he's yes. so perfect in the humor, in the technical ability. In the the personality, like, it all blends so well. And I, I just, I, I do agree with you, Dan. Like, I love him in these movies.
2: I also think that, unlike Ricky Ricky Gervais, who tends to lean into the cynical kind of humor that I don't think would really fit well in this franchise, you know, I think Simon Pegg, in a lot of ways, when you when you watch this franchise going forward, he is almost an audience surrogate. Like, how many times have we watched these movies, like, wanting to wear the mask, you know? Like, every movie, they make these masks to replicate, you know, to, to impersonate somebody else. And it's like, oh, man, how cool would it be to get to wear that mask? And then I I think in Ghost Protocol, he wants to wear the mask. He wants to get involved. But, you know, he's not a field guy and neither are we. So he shares our enthusiasm while also, you know, not getting to have a lot of that fun. And then when he does get to have that fun, we get to have fun with him. So I think that him being a real life nerd it really shows through in that performance and you know infects me as an audience member like oh man i want to like he's who i would be in this movie So I think that's a real big part of what he brings to Benji and and what Benji brings to the franchise.
0: I think he also just works so well, like, again, kind of to the point from earlier, Mike, about how it it becomes more serialized. I don't know if this was, if he was a character that was sort of considered to stick around, but I feel like just the fun he has in the limited scenes, like that one phone call he has with Tom Cruise toward the end, it's just, you almost can't get rid of him. Like, he's just, he's Mm -hmm. so charming and just works so well, bounces off, like, his sort of professionalism but silliness while Tom Cruise is serious and, like, is able to be effective at his job. Like, it, just, it, it all blends so well.
1: Yeah, he, he makes it a problem, like, to get rid of him, right? Like, he just, I don't know, like, he just has, like, so so much charisma and stuff. And, like, keeping him around is such a smart idea because it just links it more going forward. Like, oh, look, like, he was in the chair and now he's in training and now he's, in another movie he'll be a field agent and then he'll be really integral to the plot of of future movie and stuff. And so it's just really cool to just to see how they could take... Not like sort of a, a one scene character and build him up into like something they can't do do without really. Like yep. If they killed off Benji in the next movie, I'd be like, oh, my God.
2: Yeah, I, I think his presence is, is, is beneficial if only so, you know, every ridiculous stunt Tom Cruise does, he's the guy who can react to it. Like, we watch Tom Cruise, you know, (laughs) climb into a plane as it's taking off, you know, whatever. And and Simon Pegg is there with the real-life response to that. Like, oh, my God, you're climbing into a plane as it's taking off. Or, oh, my God, you're climbing up the world's tallest building. Or, oh, my God, you know whatever. Benji is the character that reacts the way we react
1: and that's what I love about him. And then it tells you that,
0: yes, even you can
1: train to be a field agent. If you try hard <laughs>
0: enough. <laughs> Mike, what about you? Is there a favorite, what's your favorite part of Mission Impossible 3?
1: I really want to say the running part, but uh, it's like too too short of a, a moment there. But that, is, what a terrific run when we get to the run.
0: Oh, we're going to end the awards oh for sure
1: we'll be mentioning that run, I can tell you that much. Even though I was surprised how little he's in the movie, i got to say the presence of Philip C. Hodge here mm. as a villain is like insane like he is so good in this and it just makes me miss him and like all that kind of wish we had more and it's just like so great that he is in a Mission Impossible movie because he's not necessarily I mean I mean until like Hunger Games really you know that was much later but I feel but like he wasn't a big franchise guy you know so it's just like such a treat to have him in a Mission Impossible movie for any amount of time, really. And to have, you know, even though I wish that scene came when it was supposed to instead of in the opening, that's such an amazing scene between him and Tom Cruise in the opening. The stuff in the airplane is great. When he, you know, I know Kyle over at Foodie Films got to shout him and his off bro Brian out because I know they love that line that he gives in the airplane about like, I'm going to find her, or I'm going to hurt her, like all that. <laughs> like, oh my God, his presence here is just insane. And, and he kicks the shit out of Tom Cruise at the end. I totally forgot that he like over overpowers him, he's like, I'll put a bomb in your head. And then he just proceeds to beat the shit out of him until he gets carred over uh, in the middle of the street. But, just so cool that he's here.
0: And I know that it's with the mask, and I know that it's supposed to be Tom Cruise, but I loved uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of as action star. Like, I know it's also a a stunt double, probably a body Mm -hmm. double, whatever. But, like, him going, like, climbing the rafters and everything, like, it's just, it's so cool to see You know, I'm not as invested in his career as Kyle and Brian are, but I did like seeing him here as a villain and I thought it was cool to see sort of two sides of him. And also when Tom Cruise is him and he's just like, hey, what's up? Like just like completely out of character for the character, but also in character for Tom Cruise. Like it's just the blend and the way that they use the masks, which are not that frequent in this movie. I think there's two masks, if I'm right. There's this one, the big one in the middle. And then when when he's using his translator as Julia, I think those are the only masks. I mean, we see the mask... We see the proverbial sausage getting made here, right? But, like the masks seem to play a lower impact lesser impact in this movie than previous movies especially after 2 where there was like 5 or whatever like crazy amounts i love what they do with the mask both narratively later but also you know just with for fun and for action for effect here yeah that's a great scene i'm so
1: glad we finally got to see that after 3 movies like how they like in the field they 3d print the mask and how he like pastes puts it on his face and that's a great little couple of trick effect shots of Tom Cruise turning into Philip Seymour Hoffman and I love when he's like we got married last week and he's like like Philip Seymour Hoffman as Tom Cruise or Tom Cruise as Philip Seymour Hoffman as Tom Cruise like gives that little likes Tom Cruise smirk. It's just so on point and, like, has all of his mannerisms now, and it's just so much fun.
2: Yeah, I really loved watching the mask get made, because you know, that's such a big part of the franchise that I felt like after three, like, by the third movie, we should be able to see that machine.
0: I think that there's a lot of those kind of examples in this movie, where J.J. is like, like, when they're trying to capture Philip Seymour Hoffman's voice, and he says, read this card, it basically captures all of the sounds in human speech in a short amount of time, so when he uh-huh. reads this thing that, like, I'm Busby's friend, blah, 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 it's all these different sounds that are able to the computer can translate that into and that's when you know he's coughing as philip schumer hoffman and he's just like while they're uploading the voice to his his chip in his neck or whatever right it's that same kind of thing where it's we might have seen that before but i feel like this is kind of peeking behind the curtain and as we add Benji here and we add more tech guys to the team, we're sort of seeing more of the tech in action and more in effect and we're sort of seeing how they're doing things as opposed to, like, it's almost like a Penn and Teller style, like, it's still magic but we're sort of seeing how the magic is being done which I think is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, it's cool that
1: they actually made that part of, like, the story or part of the tension and stuff like that, right? It's like, oh, okay, so in order for for everybody, I guess, in order to have someone sound alike they need this sentence or phrase on file somewhere and since this is like in the field there's like a limited amount of time to get it so it's like really cool how they're like this is not only is this how it's done but like we're under the gun and it's like adding you know to everything going on to all the action and stuff so it's really well played it's not like they're just saying okay you have to get him to read this in order to sound like him you know it's cool it was a
2: brilliant move to give us a glimpse behind the curtain but not just do that to do it, but to create a dramatic moment out of that. I think that's one of the most tense moments in the movie, you know, when he's waiting for that to, to upload and he's got to, like, communicate to the bodyguard, like, don't come in here. And how, what brilliant acting on Philip Seymour Hoffman's part in that scene. So, yeah, I think
0: just, just a great, great moment. And... um great way to handle that material. The tension there between one Philip Seymour Hoffman being held behind the door, right, by Jonathan mm-hmm. Reese davies mm-hmm. and then having the other Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's actually Tom Cruise, but it's still Philip Seymour Hoffman acting, coughing, holding the guy with his hand, like, just the command he has of the room there, both as an actor and both as the you know the villain in the scene it's it's phenomenal
1: and that's really good directing on JJ's part like i think that's one of the best sequences because of how well planned out it must have been and how many storyboards he must have had you know cuz later on when we get to you know, my, some of my complaints, they have to do, I think, with some of the uh, camera work and the framing and the directing.
0: You know, like, I loved Thandi Newton in the last movie, but I think that we were kind of lamenting that she was a bit sidelined, and I think that in all these movies that everyone who's not Tom Cruise is going to be sidelined in one way or another. I do want to say that my favorite part of this movie might just be the presence of all the different women. Like, I think that none of them necessarily has a ton to do, and especially I was lamenting that Carrie Russell basically has nothing to do, but she is badass in this movie, like in her one action scene that she trained three months to do. Michelle Monahan at the end, she's not not to say just a nurse as in being a nurse isn't important, but like she's just a nurse and she's not a spy, but she's able to kill a couple like kill a couple guys and defend her and Tom Cruise. Maggie Q here is just phenomenal too. I think each of their small parts could be bigger. I would like to see them do more as they diversify the team and as they bring in more people. I think seeing more women in these movies is cool. I think it's great to see here. And especially, you know, when we get to Fallout, when we get to Vanessa Kirby, uh, you know, my, my darling Hattie Shaw from Hobbs and Shaw, you know, it's going to take things even to the next level. But I think that in this movie, there's such a, I think it almost seemed, it had to be intentional almost, right? Like, let's have more women, have more to do, give them badass character abilities and traits and scenes. I think that might have been, you know, in wanting to get Tandy Newton back
1: so much because of like what a, I thought, what a cool character she turned out. You know, at the end, at least, like she was, she's a spy. She was like a super spy. Uh, So here it feels like we took that relationship and sort of split it in half between Maggie Q and Michelle Monaghan almost. Like, I'm just thinking, like, because, like, Michelle Monaghan and. Tom Cruise sort of have that love relationship that he had in the last movie, but then yet she was also a spy, so they have the Maggie Q character. So maybe there was some more complications of them being married in the field. I don't know. My mind started going, like, cool places if Thandie Noon was actually in this, but then I was like, well, it's, it's great that they were able to still populate it with, like, so many other... Women in this movie, too.
2: One of the things I I like most about this movie is what it does with the whole idea of a professional spy, you know, marrying, settling down, and trying to live a normal life, right? Like, what's that going to do to that relationship if he's called back into the field and has to keep his whole relationship?
0: Not good things.
2: Right. He believes that he can manage both things. Everyone's telling him he can't do it. Spoiler alert. He can't. No, it's a house of lies. But, it's a house of <laughs> lies. But but I love that this this whole movie is essentially grappling with that question. I mean the the actual plot which involves the rabbit's foot and all of that is all to serve this particular idea of a spy trying to be married and have a wife and a, and a, and a normal life, right? Because if it wasn't for that, then there's no movie. All of the women do get opportunities to, to really shine in this movie. And I do think that they... Should be given more stuff. Although, I wonder if, if Michelle Monaghan was given more to do in this movie, that it wouldn't accidentally become like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is exactly what I wouldn't want this movie to be. So, and, and I don't know that J.J. Abrams is the guy who's going to thread that needle. You know, he's not exactly the guy who's going to subvert expectations. I am very happy all the women in this movie did get opportunities to really kick ass, but uh, I would like to have seen more. With Michelle Monaghan that didn't seem
1: hammy I think everybody at one point sort of gets pushed aside because even Philip Seymour Hoffman right he gets rescued on the bridge and then disappears for like an hour yeah you know like he's in the movie for like 20 minutes then he's gone then he comes so like I feel like that way for everybody basically except for Ethan Hunt (laughs) yeah but and yet I don't want any less of him either I guess I'd just rather have him than better than nothing I guess
0: Right. Like, I think Michelle Monaghan gets sidelined just narratively. I mean, it's the same, it's it's sort of the inverse of why Philip Seymour Hoffman does, like you were just saying, Mike, but I think there's a reason to it. It's just, it's still kind of a bummer as a viewer, but I understand why it happens. And I think at the end of the day, I think we all kind of need to assume or just understand that, like, this is a Tom Cruise movie, right? And that means yeah. something, as opposed to, like, it's not an action movie starring Tom Cruise, it's a Tom Cruise movie.
2: Right. And I, and I think the franchise, over, like, beyond this movie has done a much better job, with its female characters. You know, it, it's always gonna be the Tom Cruise show, but I think that the, the female members of his team have always been, ha, have, have gotten increasingly better and more interesting. This is just the beginning of that trend. We gotta judge it based on its own merit, but the franchise does, do a better job with that, which is a great thing.
1: These are movies populated with lots of small roles. And like, even from the jump, we had, you know, John Voight was in the first movie for like a minute and then killed and then came back at the end. Spoilers, but we're at part three already. I mean, and you got guys like Fishburne coming in this for like, probably a total of like three minutes screen time. Everybody's sort of got a small role. So we need these stronger actors in place to give them more weight in such a small amount of time. And I think everybody's really pulling their weight.
0: Now on the flip side, and I think we've all sort of alluded to things that we are not necessarily thrilled with about this movie. Even though I think it's safe to say that we all enjoy this movie. and think it's all pretty good. Dan, what would you say mm-hmm. is your least favorite part about this movie? What what about this doesn't work for you? What would you change, remove, or swap out? What's your least favorite part of Mission Impossible Three?
2: I might have to have you come back to me because there's there's nothing about this movie that really is is a glaring flaw that I can that I can think of. Like I didn't watch it and and have that. Oh man, that this would be great if it wasn't for that thing.
0: All right. Mike, what about you?
1: I think I alluded to it twice already, maybe. And again, like, I do still really like this movie and enjoy it and stuff, but uh, this this sort of takes away some things, and I think it might, some light might be shined on this in some of the trivia, maybe, because it all regards, like, the actual filmmaking of the movie. Like, I don't really have an issue with, like, any of the, the plot or the story or the action or, like, the acting or anything, but I don't necessarily feel like these action sequence especially in the first half mm-hmm. I'm not really thrilled I'm not really riveted there's a lot of shootouts there's a lot of darkness there's a lot of vast camera work. They sort of go the Jason Bourne route with this when I'm used to the more sort of the last two movies were just the shooting like the sequences in those are just gorgeous and here I just feel like it's been taken down a notch a little visually. And again, it's not like the worst thing like imaginable. Like I could it's still watchable. There is a lot of shaky cam. I don't feel like the action sequences are as good as they maybe could be with a more seasoned director. I think he might Bite off a little more than he can chew. The best one for me is the one on the True Lies bridge, where he sort of, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, escapes. It's not like unwatchable or anything. It's just like kind of. I was a little disappointed, I guess, because I, I remember coming back to this, being like loving this one, being like, oh, it's the best, like my favorite one, the best action, like, uh, and I was just sort of surprised to be like, oh, I do not really like the visual style of this movie as much as the last two. So, uh, you know, not like the harshest thing, but just, you know, personal taste, I guess. It just didn't really click with me in that way for Mission
0: Impossible. No, I get all that. And I think my thing is another personal taste thing that I've also mentioned already is that, like, stop making movies that start in the beginning of the end scene. Like, what the fuck? Like, what are you (laughs) doing? Stop it. It's like the best scene, too. Like, oh. It's so frustrating that, like, it starts with a villain we don't know, with a woman we don't know, with Tom Cruise obviously in agony and dismay, and we're like, this means something, but we don't know what they're talking about, we don't know who these people are, I get that it's, like, tense, but stop it. Just stop it. This is not a J.J. Abrams thing, this is just a Hollywood thing, you know, it's the don't breathe the vacation, even though this came way before Don't Breathe, it's just, you know, one of the most glaring, <laughs> most, most egregious ones, That I think that might have been the first time I actually pointed it out on that episode of Cinemakers that we did, Mike, but, like, stop it. Like, stop... Sort of shooting a proverbial load before you get to the scene. Like if you want to start this off with Philip Seymour Hoffman, like establishing him as this villain of your movie, go for it. Have him do something terrible or heinous or whatever to someone else. But don't cheat the end of the movie. That scene is a cheat too, because it's not actually Jules. Like we don't, like we don't yeah, know that. Yeah. And I think the the murder, like you feel it because you're like, oh, like I, you know, you know she's not dead if you've seen later movies, but you think that in the moment she's dead because you see her on screen and like i think that that scene is effective in sort of making you forget about mask technology right like how did they have it right like it's just the good guys have it and i think that mm-hmm. is like, i think the cheat there works but don't cheat that scene by starting your movie there like it's so frustrating and i think i'm only going to get more angry as these keep popping up in movies because you're only hurting yourself like trust in the screenplay to get you there like you're not learning new things It's not like it's a different perspective. It's the same thing. What are you doing?
2: Okay, I'm going to be the lone voice of dissent here, clearly. I actually really like that the movie starts. Right where it starts.
0: Please explain why.
2: I and mean, I think it has to do with context, right? Like, we this is the third movie of this franchise. People who are a little older may remember the Mission Impossible TV series, right? Ethan Hunt, he is James Bond just in this franchise. He is always going to make it out alive. He is always going to save the day. He's always going to win. With this particular opening, we know who Ethan Hunt is, and we see what we believe to be him... Losing—that's something that I have never seen before. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the rest of the franchise. We all know Michelle Monaghan lives and blah blah blah. But when I first saw this, you know, I didn't know what was coming. I watched that that scene, and I loved being tossed into the middle of a scenario, not having any idea what was happening. But all I knew was at the end of it that Ethan Hunt fails, and I thought, oh shit, okay. And then I realized that you know, when, when, once the main credits you know are over. Oh, okay. That was a flash forward. What's going to lead to this? Like, how is that going to resolve? Like, I was so excited to see where that scene was going to go. I guess I don't entirely understand your qualm with starting in a scene like that and then, you know, going all the way back to the beginning. I thought in this particular movie, it was very effective. Now, what might have worked better? You, you, you may, you may uh, enjoy this particular. Thing better but if maybe they had started with, with the same type of scene but that was unrelated to the movie that proceeded it there, there are there are a number of uh, of bond cold opens where he's in the middle of a case or or, or a mission and something happens he finishes that mission credits and then he gets sent on the next thing
0: i don't mind that like i don't mind starting in media res like avengers age of ultron starts in the middle of a mission right like it's like mm-hmm. this badass thing or whatever like that's cool throw me into action i love that don't cheapen your movie by throwing us into a scene we're going to see later. Like it doesn't help me. Have Tom Cruise losing but then something or whatever and like have him start the movie start the movie in earnest by being retired and about to get married. Right. I don't like I don't think that this does anything good for your story. I like what you think when you're able to grab from the scene narratively that this is a new side of him, this is him losing. I love that. But I don't think that the actual showing of a later scene does anything like if you're able to pull the same things in a different way i think it's more effective i don't think that there's any good that comes of it when you cheapen your own climax by showing it by like this is where we're going to get to so what like why are you spoiling that for me let it be a surprise
1: right yeah i almost wonder if this was the wrong scene to insert into the beginning and loop back to into the middle uh because i'm more on your side joey like all the time like i i just I would rather sort of just get to it when it's intended and I, I you know this is to me the best scene of the movie and if it came when it was quote unquote supposed to in the screenplay instead of like the truncated awkward version that we get when it comes back around you know like that's my major problem is like we don't Really get the full scene when we need it. Uh, I would much rather have it be a surprise in the middle when he actually does show up with his wife, and because he makes that big threat, I'm going to find her, I'm going to kill her, she's going to scream your name, and I'm going to kill her in front of you, and all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, that's him. He'll end up doing that twice or <laughs> having that opportunity twice. But like, yeah, I don't know. I, w- I think personally, I, I, if you want to show Ethan Hunt in a state of weakness, I think they did that by showing him getting engaged, yeah. quite honestly. Uh, that's enough for me to say he's lost. Uh, he's no longer a spy. like He has gotten soft. This is a situation I never thought I'd see him in. And yeah, introduce Philip Sumer-Hoffman going after Carrie Russell, putting the bomb in her head. Show us that as the opening. And then to learn that she was trained by Ethan would bring the weight and the stuff that we need for him to go on mission.
0: I also think that like there's a sadness here the way that the movie exists now because I love that idea of having Carrie Russell like still someone we don't know still establishing you know Philip Seymour Hoffman's villainy this is like a cheesy movie thing that I just thought but like Carrie Russell could like shout like Ethan no or you know whatever like you could establish her tie in that scene or whatever in any number of ways I think there's a sadness here to having Michelle Monaghan as a woman we don't know killed and then we flash forward to the next scene and it's oh that's the woman that Ethan's about to marry like there's a sadness there but I also feel like it cheapens her story the sadness that you're supposed to feel I think by like oh Ethan's actions led to this woman being killed we know that it's going to be a tragic end because we see her or hear her die or whatever we then see who, who she is to him but then the movie kind of undoes that by saying oh it wasn't really her anyway and it's just a weird like what I think could be set up well and like this kind of mechanic or this kind of effect or whatever that I would like I think the movie undoes in that way and I just I just don't like having it spoiled like I think Mike's on to something in terms of other substitutions you could use but that's just my problem with it Dan is that I don't like telegraphing or or hinting at what's going to come or just showing you what's going to come like let's get to that way organically as opposed to like here's a sneak preview like I don't need a movie trailer in the movie
2: yeah no I'm I I, I get the point you guys are making I'm I'm not feeling swayed though I still really like that opening I don't I don't necessarily agree that it cheapens that scene
0: I mean I think it works better here than in a lot of movies I just hate it used in any movie sure because I really want like I think that this in the grand scheme of things is probably a better implementation than things Mike that you and I have talked about in other movies, but I still don't, I don't like it here. I don't, I don't want to see that.
1: This is what I feel JJ does the best and some may say like he did it too much in, in the new War Stars movie, but like, he crafts a situation to get you to feel a certain way only for that moment like it's literally just for that scene or that sequence and then it's like oh shit I feel that way and now on to something else it's like oh a party okay now I feel like I'm at a party and like he's really great at just sort of like drop it forget it and now pick this back up kind of filmmaking and I think that's totally fine like that's a tough style to work and he makes it work and he's making it work in this movie and I think that might just be a byproduct of his style you know and like trying to have like the whole mystery box thing and it's like oh like what is the rabbit's foot like set that up it's like the huge thing that all of this conversation and everybody's like tied to a chair and it's the rabbit's foot it's like okay the intrigue in this scene is definitely there the characters are set like everything is in place but then like a few scenes later. It's It's kind of like washed away for me in a way like there's nothing like permanence really beyond the moment and I don't know if that's also just me but I it does work in the moment I will say that much like as I'm watching this movie I'm going oh shit I don't know what's gonna happen But then you know a few scenes later I think I'm sort of out of out of that moment for good so
2: in other movies you know maybe this sort of a moment wouldn't work as well but I think that a big part of why I'm like why I love this opening could be partially due to Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, if it was just some unknown Mm -hmm. actor and, you know, him against Tom Cruise, you know, maybe I wouldn't care as much. But this is a scene with Tom Cruise against Philip Seymour Hoffman, completely out of context, and they're both delivering powerhouse performances. I'm willing to say that that at least elevates that scene for me to something that, I find really enjoyable. Regardless of, of whether or not, the, regardless of what it may or may not do to the rest of the film, I find that opening to be really compelling, if only for
0: that. Absolutely. So if that scene works for you, and that's something that you know, Mike and I have issues with, have you thought of something that doesn't work for you? Is there a scene in here that that you don't like that you would remove it's
2: hard to pick something about this particular movie to sort of jump off of something i said earlier the way that this movie sort of created a formula for future entries in the franchise i think that the one thing i don't like about where the franchise has gone starting with three is that everything sort of feels a little bit homogenized this one's not a great example because philip seymour hoffman's such a great bad guy but You know, I look at the other movies and I feel like they're all following the formula and the bad guys could all kind of be the same. And the mission itself isn't really that important. It's about stunts and it's about this, the the fun interplay between the team, the IMF team, those things that are enjoyable in the moment. You know, I think about the other the other entries now in my head, Fallout and uh, and, and Ghost Protocol and, and Rogue Nation, and I can't remember what happens in each of them specifically. They don't have a specific identity, and that, I think, can be traced back to this particular movie, which I think on its own is really fun, but created a trend of of that sort of homogenized product that I don't love. I I don't know if that makes sense or not. It's not a specific complaint about this particular movie, maybe, but it's sort of where I see the genesis of that trend within the franchise.
1: I hear what you're saying there. Tom Cruise is now well, he's like a producer involved in this, right, right? So right. like and Joey and I have discussed in the past how like you know once he gets that name on like he's doing stunts like he these stunts are going to be bigger like these movies are going to sort of be playgrounds for him and we get like the roof jump in this or whatever, right? Like it's already started, you know? So, yeah. And I think he even climbs another really tall building in another one, right? So they almost like redo some of this stuff again uh, even better or higher or during the day. So, so we mentioned like him getting on a plane and Benji being like, oh, my God, he's on a plane now. I get where you're coming from for sure. It, it doesn't bother me per se. I'm just such a big fan. It just doesn't bother me. But like I, I know where you're coming from. Like I'm
2: not saying I don't enjoy them because, you know, like I looked at the other ra- the ratings I gave the future entries and I like them more. I think I, like I've given them up to four, four and a half stars. But at the end of the day, I think back, like, which one was that? Was that the one where he climbs up the really tall building and then slams his face on the window? You know, like, I don't remember the plot so much as I remember the set pieces. It's fun in the moment. I don't know how how much of a lasting impact these movies will have. And that's a little bit upsetting. Whereas, like I said, I'm a big James Bond fan. I look back at the franchise and they all feel very distinct to me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just because I love that franchise. Maybe to other people, they all feel the same. I, I feel very much the same way about like the Fast and the Furious franchise. As much as I enjoy those movies as I watch them, I can't remember major plot points specific to a particular movie
0: but i feel that way already even about the first one and if you're saying the first one is different like i don't remember the plot of the first one but i remember the train sequence i remember him on the wire (laughs) the
2: the knock list yeah like i that that plot makes like i remember that vividly but maybe that's because i just love that particular movie so much
1: but now what's the plot of two that i couldn't tell you really there's something about a virus
2: Maybe it's because I've seen the first two way more than I've seen the rest of these.
0: That also might be the same one, like when we just recorded. I guess it came out a couple weeks ago because time is a flat circle. But we just recorded our Furious Seven episode with Kara, and Kara was like, "I couldn't tell you what that movie's about." And I'm like, "It doesn't. Like, it doesn't. Almost doesn't matter. Like, it matters, but it doesn't matter. But if you watch mm-hmm. it enough, you know the plot. You know that there's like a there's God's Eye and blah 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 blah. But yeah. I feel like all action movies now have become spectacle. And I think it's maybe lamenting just the industry as a whole, and I think that's totally fair. I think if this movie doesn't work for you in a way that those early ones do, if the first ones are more reminiscent of a Bond movie than the later ones, by all means, just you know enjoy the ones you love. Like I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I think that there is something fun about the spectacle of it all. I think that's why people like me, specifically, like these later movies is that that scene from every commercial of Tom Cruise hanging off the plane, that's how Rogue Nation starts, right? Like That's how the movie begins begins and there's like five other scenes that are like bigger than that and like that's exciting to me like i don't necessarily need to remember or need to care about the knock list or whatever like in my head i'm not thinking about mission impossible the first one as the one where he's trying to get the knocklist back or whatever i don't even know the mm-hmm. plot whatever but as yeah. the one where he's like hanging from a wire sweat about to drip on the ground it can't drip on the ground there's the red laser it's him in the glasses like it's the shots it's the scenes the set pieces that even in the ones where the plot are plots driving it that's still what sticks out to me. So I think I think it's just, you know, maybe the way that you watch it, which again, not a bad thing, just a different way of watching it. Yeah,
2: maybe. And it, it, like I said, it, it may be that I just haven't seen these as much as some other people. All I can say is that, you know, as I watch them, I really, really enjoyed them. But they all kind of blend together. And I think that has to do mostly with, you know, the sort of J.J. Abrams effect of just sort of homogenizing this thing into into one formula like it was one thing and it all has to follow this it all has to feel like this and i don't necessarily love that i wish the movies had had a little more identity i still i still really enjoy these movies so it's it's and it sounds like i'm railing on them but i'm just trying to find something to find Negative no, to say. I don't think
0: you're rallying on them at all. I think that you have been the kindest to all these movies, more so than me and Mike have been, I think, and we all are in agreement that we like this. I also do want to point out that Tom Cruise is a, a producer on every Mission Impossible movie, even the first two. Um, so he a producer all the way back from the beginning, so I think there have always been sort of how do I get myself you know, into these movies, how can I do crazy things in these movies? So. Right, but like
2: those first two, like the first one, feels like distinctly like maybe De Palma. I mean, he directed it, so it feels like a De Palma film. The second one, John Wu directed that, and you can see the John
0: Woo in there. But this also feels like a JJ film, maybe. Yeah, right. For better and worse, like it feels like yeah. it's it's the style, it's the look, it's the sub, it's the the glossiness. It's. But maybe I feel yeah. like the
2: sub the, the subsequent entries feel like they're trying to replicate that J.J. style.
1: Like, it was tough to tell at the time, because this is, like, his first feature film, I believe, or a directing job, or, like, major. So, like, but this definitely feels and looks to me a lot like Star Trek or his Star Wars movies. Like, he's definitely... This feels like J.J.
0: to me, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm ever necessarily going to be well-equipped to speak about these things in later movies, but I haven't seen Ghost Protocol since it came out on Blu-ray. I haven't seen Rogue Nation since theaters. I haven't seen Fallout since I saw it twice in theaters, right? Like... I can't really articulate the the visual style of that and whether that's, you know, I think I feel like Christopher McQuarrie is probably doing things differently, but also maybe it is establishing a little bit of a blueprint than the way that, you know, to bring it back to Fast and Furious again, because that's what I know, like Justin Lin sort of established a visual blueprint with Tokyo Drift and sort of established it from then on, right? Like in, even though you had James Wan and you had F. Gary Gray doing seven and eight, like it still kind of adhered to that visual style. And I, don't, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily it might not feel as special or unique but i don't think it's necessarily bad it's just a it's different yeah
2: and i, and I look at like ghost protocol as you know brad bird's first live action directorial effort you know like up until that he had done uh, pixar movies right even though it does feel very visually in keeping with the the, the sort of tone that J.J. J. Abrams had established for a guy who had never directed live action, you know, actors before. It's an incredible effort. You know, I love Brad Bird. I think he can like he's just incredible. But I wish that he had established a, a more distinct visual style. But as as a guy who had who jumped into this, never having done it, at the very least, was able to keep it consistent with the, the previous installment. I think that was an incredible effort.
0: In, in that same regard, we need to point out that this is J.J.'s first feature, that he'd only done TV stuff before then. So this is kind of a new ground for him, too. I know it's it's not necessarily the same thing as going from animation to live action, but it's it's also a kind of brand-new ballgame for him. And if, if this is, in fact, the movie that establishes the visual tone the rest of the franchise that's kind of even more impressive that you can have a guy who's never made a movie before come in and be like oh hey biggest action franchise in the world here's how we're doing it from now on i think that's kind of you know cool too
2: i uh i don't think i realize that okay I,
0: i i i uh will alter my my judgment (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> couple other, One other note that I made that I want to make sure we point out is that Aaron Paul was in this. He is yes. uh, Michelle Monaghan's brother, so a couple years before Breaking Bad, he was here, and I, I was like, is he just in the first scene that he comes back later as the guy who, you know, tipped off the enemy to where Jules is, but yeah, science, so that's cool. Mike, any other thoughts about Mission Impossible 3 before I do some trivia and then we do some uh, games? It was cool. I liked Billy Crudup in
1: this, the original Dr. Manhattan, I guess, as it were. I, I didn't really, I didn't remember I remember he was in this. I knew that as soon as I saw him, I remembered he was the bad guy. And I love how he plays the good bad guy. Like I just like if you look at him and his performance, like he's doing things to help Ethan to, and and it's like oh it's because like no he's the bad guy. Like I just like. He's such a background character but he works so well and to come back at the end like that I think was really cool. I think the final note I had involved him when he gives him the disposable Kodak camera. I was like, "Oh, it's like the only thing that really dates this movie is like I don't think those exist anymore." And people are probably wondering like, "What the hell is that? Why aren't you just like that's a camera? What did you do with it? How'd you how'd you expose those pictures like you drop them off where like a photo mat like what it just raises so many questions but it feels more like a imf tool now than like something for mass production but and dan
0: what about you any other thoughts about mi3
2: you know like like i said before like a lot of jj abrams installments in in franchise films he kind of breathes new life into something that uh was previously um a little bit stale or uh or just wasn't working and i think that there's something to be said for that this is my second to last favorite of of this franchise but i think that's by no means a uh a detriment to the film yeah i, th- I think this is uh, honestly uh, a pretty solid mission impossible uh
0: film i think that this is you know the, the worst thing we can say about it mike is that maybe it's not as good as we remembered or thought it could be but uh yeah. Again, not bad. Yeah, it's, you know,
1: it's no Fate of the Furious. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's... Hey, not, hey, it hey, let's
0: not throw names under the bus here. But yes, <laughs> no, but is, isn't that the one, though? Because we yeah, usually, yeah, yeah.
1: like, I love using the comparison that, like, you know, even though I have to rank one of those Fast and Furious movies at the bottom, they're still, like higher than most other movies yep. I watch, but then you always say, like, eight is always at the bottom, so, like, I'm just saying that, like, it's just, I don't yes. think we ever get an eight with this entire franchise, yeah, even at that level, like, they're all really good movies.
0: So here's some, uh, some trivia about this movie, no surprise here that Tom Cruise did the vast majority of his own stunts in the film, but he did crack two ribs while turning at one point, so that's uh, <laughs> something. Paramount teamed up the Los Angeles Times to promote this movie by putting tape recorders in forty five hundred newspaper boxes. It's like when people opened it to get a newspaper out, it'd say, Your mission should you should you choose to accept it, blah blah blah, maybe go see the movie, I don't know. But they a lot of them fell and they were just visible on top of the newspapers, and so they had multiple <sighs> bomb threats called in, and so the LA P D or Bomb Squad or whoever detonated multiple Newspaper boxes because people were freaking out that they were that they thought these were bombs. In spite of this, Paramount and the Los Angeles Times continued the promotion, so that did not stop them. So, okay, (laughs) that's awesome. Two things, and this is I I sort of hinted at this a little bit earlier, and this is something we talked about last episode, Mike, when we talked about War of the Worlds. When War of the Worlds was being promoted, and Tom Cruise jumps on the Oprah couch, and apparently it uh, made Steven Spielberg unhappy, and they haven't worked together since. This was the last film that Paramount would distribute between of uh, the Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner films that they made together. Paramount owner Sumner Redstone decided not to renew the distribution rights. Apparently, uh, Redstone was disgusted by, quote-unquote, disgusted by Cruise's recent antics, particularly the couch jumping. And then that's when Cruise and Wagner re- resurrected the United Artists Company, which had closed a few years previously. And then similarly, but not at all sort of similarly, around this time, South Park did the episode Trapped in the Closet, which was a Scientology episode. And Tom Cruise threatened to cancel publicity because Comedy Central, owned by Viacom which also owns Paramount if Jesus. if Comedy Central did not pull that episode from reruns uh, he would not promote this film and so they pulled the episode I guess it hasn't re-aired since this is I feel like kind of a tipping point Mike where we've been not that we've been following his personal life because he's been married a couple times by this point blah 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 things in his personal life are beginning to bleed over a little bit into the movie life we're still not going to be covering mm. that the way that we quote-unquote should maybe I don't know but it feels like it's sort of getting a harder to separate you know personal life from professional life when you read the behind the scenes of the promotion or whatever that's exactly what
1: i was just going to say it just starts to become to the point where it's unavoidable like yeah. uh, as much as you want to try like it's uh it's like the sun is still gonna be in the big in the sky and you need sunglasses it's like that's just gonna happen i think it's from time to
0: time now
2: i don't think i realized that uh, the couch thing uh impacted his relationship with spielberg
0: as we're recording this our episode of mission uh, of war of the worlds has not come out yet on that episode we talk about how he was supposed to be on the episode with tom cruise steven spielberg was supposed to be there as well and he had to do i think post-production work of some kind and so he couldn't make it and then tom cruise went on there and then just started jumping around and so i think it was maybe a combination of just I, just a lot of different things where he's just like oh this is not the way to uh, that that i want somebody you know representing my property or whatever yeah,
1: we do not want this kind of connotation with our license or our film. Yep. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like
0: a bunch of what almost was, and this is what I was sort of saying at the very top. Uh, well, J.J. J. Abrams was hired after Tom Cruise watched a bunch watched a bunch of episodes of Alias and was impressed. So I think that, you know, he was just like, let's do this guy. At one point, Kenneth Branagh was, I think this is maybe an early version of J.J., J., possibly Kenneth Branagh cast as the villain, but then because of shooting delays, because of War of the Worlds, like was surprisingly greenlit. Like I think that just sort of came together very quickly. So this got pushed back, which I guess also kind of explains why it had been four years between the first two, but then six years to this one. Because I guess you know maybe it was going to come out oh four oh five whatever. Kenneth Brown had to drop out to do a diff- different movie because there were shooting delays here. That would have been awesome. Yeah.
1: I, I mean I love Kenneth Brown.
2: Tobin Eddington and I will go all day talking Kenneth Brown
1: off. Fingers crossed there'll be a Bond villain one day. So I got time. I
2: <laughs> would love it. The man knows how to rock some facial hair, but not only that, he's a brilliant dramatic actor. I think he would have um if if he were to play a villain in this franchise, he would add some much needed uh gravitas or, or not maybe not maybe not much needed, but much welcomed gravitas to the uh to the films.
0: You know, as a uh, backup though, you could do a lot worse than PSH.
2: Oh, I yeah, I'm that's not a slight at Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think he's also got incredible dramatic chops and I think that that works in this movie's benefit. But Branagh as a villain in this franchise would be spectacular.
0: Ang Lee was apparently attached to direct this at one point, and the version of that movie was going to be where they're destroying various wonders of the world, but they felt that right after 9-11, it was a little bit too much too soon, and so they drew that back. There was another version where Frank Darabont, he had written a version that was about trafficking human organs, so that was another, I guess, possible potential plot thread at one point for this movie. David Fincher was first tapped to direct, but he had to back out. I guess that would have been the maybe the the body parts, the human organs. And in that version, Sylvester Stallone would have been the villain, which or he was courted oh, at least to play the oh, villain, man. which would have been you know, can you imagine Cruz against Stallone? Man oh man. Uh, not in this
1: Yeah. Mood. Like Stallone fits better in like Guardians of the Galaxy or that kind of thing. Like he's a little too sticks out a little too much.
2: Yeah. I don't know, yeah, I don't know if, if two thousand six Stallone
0: could pull that off is it the same year as rocky balboa
1: oh boy which was i think around the
0: time of the that rambo movie too rambo 40. rambo that was I 08 so it was a little before oh, a okay. little after that but yeah it's still like the uh kind of the comeback tour right where he's <laughs> before he's unk. <laughs> in the credits for this uh jj abrams thanks the hanzo foundation which is just a, a shout out to loss which i think is pretty cool
1: oh sick
0: this was you know jj's first feature film, $150 million budget at the time, maybe still possibly, I don't know, but probably not because, well, I don't know, uh, was the most expensive film for a first-time feature film director ever. That's a lot of money. Like This is very high stakes. I mean, not that he was new to the scene in any regard, but again, for a first movie, that's... A lot.
1: Yeah, I think it was. A, he was pretty much a short thing around that time because he had nothing but three hit shows at the time, which was Felicity, Alias, and Lost. And it was yep. like, well, everything he touches turns to gold. So, like, what are we going to do? Let's give him a shot. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be one of the First of that new breed of, like, let's pick somebody, not out of obscurity, necessarily, but, like, seemingly out of nowhere, and give him a shot and see if he can do it, and
0: worked out. Now, some uh, cool stuff about the women in this movie. I mentioned that Thanny Newton was offered the chance to reprise her role, but she, she turned down. Her character was later turned into a new character named Leah Quint, and Carrie Ann Moss had been brought on to play that role. But then when J.J. Abrams took over directing the project, they rewrote the script, and her character was cut entirely... You know, thereby, I guess, oh, getting rid of Charlie and Loss. No Trinity. Uh, Rachel McAdams, my girl, Rachel McAdams, turned down the role Ooh. that went to Michelle Monaghan. So she was, I guess, almost Jules at one point. Uh, Scargio, Black Widow, was pulled out. Uh, <laughs> she was cast and then later replaced by Kerry Russell. So, yes, she was almost Lindsay. Oh. But, again, this would have been after Lost in Translation. But before, what does she show up for the first time? Iron Man 2, right? So. yeah. Before Widow, but, you know... Many years later. Kerry Russell, speaking of Kerry Russell, trained for three months for her her scenes, but she was only in the movie for, like, ten minutes. I think kind of the one action scene, which is awesome, but, like, that's a lot of time to spend training for, you know, one or two scenes. Other actors considered for the role of Lindsay, the Kerry Russell part, are Katie Holmes, which... Sure. Yep. uh, Lindsay Lohan, Alicia Cuthbert, and Jessica Alba. So, basically, if you're trendy in 2005, you know, you're considered... Yeah, I could see all of them playing that role. <laughs> and then two little weird bits of coincidence about the female or the female actors in this movie: Michelle Monaghan and Carrie Russell, both born on March twenty third, nineteen seventy six. Normally, you know, trivia that I would not mention because this is a Tom Cruise podcast. But like, how weird is it that like two people were born on the same day and are in the same movie? Carrie Russell, Michelle Monaghan, and Maggie Q all voiced Wonder Woman in different animated oh, features. So that's cool. In Wonder Woman two thousand nine, Young Justice two thousand ten, and Justice League War in 2014, which I think is kind of cool. This is obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman back from Magnolia. We covered him on, with Cruz in another movie already. The last thing I want to mention, this is something I think we're going to talk about more in the next Mission Impossible movie, I think, Mike, when we have Jeremy Renner in here, speaking of Widow and speaking of the MCU. But apparently around this time, and I think due in large part to a movie that Dan mentioned earlier, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, there apparently were a lot of rumors going around at this point that Brad Pitt was going to replace Tom Cruise as the lead of the Mission Impossible franchise, which I think this movie Hmm. does more so than any other movie kind of leave it open to interpretation, like, will he be back? Will he be replaced? But apparently, I don't know if that was ever actual serious discussion, serious conversation. There There was multiple people talking about, like, I guess it was, like, a big deal that, like, he might get replaced by Brad Pitt.
1: There's rumblings, it's weird, because there's rumblings now that he might only do the next two and they're going to hand the franchise off to someone else but like to me it doesn't feel like something you could do with Bond at this point because it's weird in a way I want it to be the continuing adventures of Ethan Hunt and just recast Ethan Hunt and this kind of thing but then again it would be so bold if they just handed it off to a whole new character and kept calling it Mission Impossible so I guess I don't know what I want and I just take whatever they're going to keep given me from now on.
2: I would really not like to see Brad Pitt take over. I find him so much more interesting as a character actor than I do as a leading man.
0: I would agree with that. I mean, I also just, you know, love him and everything, so I I wouldn't mind it, but I do agree that I'd rather see him in smaller... I also think that, like, everybody is kind of better in smaller roles. Like, even the best actors, like, you know, we have podcasts about Nicolas Cage, better as a character actor. Keanu Reeves, better as a character actor. Shia Buff, better as a character actor. Like, right. when you are able to flex your weird creative muscles, it turns out better. I think, you know, not having to shoulder the load, right?
2: Right, even Tom Cruise. Like, I was just recently, a few months ago, talking about him and Tropic Thunder. Like... He's so good in that movie because he's Tom Cruise and not playing a Tom Cruise role.
1: Mm -hmm. I hear where you're coming from, Dan, because I, I like, I like my Brad Pitt sharing the lead, like fight club or once upon a time in Hollywood, like those kinds of roles, not so much like Mr. And even Mr. And Mrs. Smith, you know, he's sharing the lead there and stuff. But and then like, when you get him in Ad Astra, like, what, the reason I guess I love him in that so much is because it's just him, maybe, like for the most part, you know, <laughs> when there's nothing else to really like kind of center focus on for that long. So it worked for me. But I, I hear where you're going for I like I, I don't really in a weird way, I don't see him as an action guy. I never did. And I don't think he really is
0: right in that regard, Mike, you could have we could have a movie where it's Cruz and Brad Pitt and they're sharing focus. I think that could work. Right. But I don't oh, know. Yeah, there you go. Um, so very important questions. The answer to the first one, of course, does he run? Of course, Tom Cruise runs this movie. But a better question, a question we asked you when you were on for Minority Report, Dan. We found someone on Twitter, HarperFact, who said you could replace Tom Cruise's character in any movie with the name of Lightning McQueen and (laughs) not a thing would change. Now, we've had some mixed opinions on past Mission Impossible movies. Do you think... And here's here's the sales pitch, Mike. I want you to contribute to the sales pitch since we are doing this differently yeah. now. Here's the sales pitch to you, Dan. So we're going to replace Ethan Hunt's name with Lightning McQueen. The way that I see it happening, it doesn't really make a difference. I think it's fine. Ethan Hunt could be a code name. We don't know if it's necessarily. I and mean, we also know what what do we learn in the first movie, right? Like it's it's not even his name. Oh
1: well, so like Ethan is his mother's maiden name. Yeah. So he has two last names. Like his parents. <laughs> if you look on his credentials, his name is his mother's maiden name is Ethan. So they named their son (laughs) Ethan Hunt. It's so bizarre. So
0: in that regard, you know, she could have been Mrs. Lightning or Ms. Lightning, right? And it's fine. So I think in that regard, I think anything is possible. I think Lightning McQueen is a totally fine... IMF agent. Mike, do you have anything to add before Dan renders his verdict? Um, you
1: know, it also could have been like his new civilian identity when he left the IMF. I don't know how he's even able to keep calling himself Ethan Hunt to his fiance and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, my name's Lightning and I'm so damn charming and, and I'm gonna bore you with all of this bullshit about my fake job. You're just gonna totally like gloss over the fact that my name is Lightning McQueen and we're all just gonna get along with it and
0: <laughs> and accept it because that's the way it is. So Dan, what do you think? Could he be Lightning McQueen? In this movie, in this franchise, or no?
2: It's a little bit of a complex answer. I think that uh if we're if we're talking about the franchise overall, there's so much ridiculous stuff happening in this movie in in the franchise. Having your main character be named Lightning McQueen would not necessarily feel out of place. Overall, my answer would be yes. But if we're talking about like specific entries, like the first. Mission Impossible movie that is just too serious for that sort of a name. If that makes sense, I think that the the as a as a whole, the franchise and 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 conceptually, it it could support a main character named Lightning McQueen. But that first Mission Impossible movie, the the uh, De Palma movie. I don't think it could.
0: That's enough of a yes for me. I'm going to write down yes. Yeah, I I would say overall yes. Wonderful. That's all I needed to hear. Thank you so much. All right, Tom Cruise Awards, maybe the Golden Masks. I feel like we almost have to do something Mission Impossible related, right? Like the Golden Missions? That's still not a thing.
1: Yeah, because they used to, in the TV show, I think it was always like the same thing. Like it was a tape or something in this. Do we even get the wick of the dynamite? I don't even think we get that in this. So. In, I don't the, know. in the
0: titles? In the, title. yeah, in yeah. the titles, yeah. Wait, the, okay. the golden destructibles? We'll, we'll work on it. Uh, we'll work on it. Best film, worst film? No, I think it's, again, like we've been saying all along down the middle. Best cruise role, we already have this nominated. Most mm-hmm. badass role, we already have this nominated. Best fight. Is there a fight in here that we want to nominate to stack up against all the, the fights in this career? You know, an actual fist fight or a battle or something. Is there something in this movie, best fight?
2: I think the fight he has with Philip Seymour Hoffman is really good. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's going to top his fight with
1: Henry Cavill. No, I don't think it will either. But what, what's cool about it is that it's Philip Seymour Hoffman beating the shit out of Tom Cruise. Like, it's so surreal on that level yeah. that it just, like, amps it up. And then Tom Cruise doing
0: those weird elbow punches. and Oh, that was so yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, where he's there's, holding like, some head strange in moves. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, hmm
0: Love it. Best theme song, soundtrack, score. We have the franchise already down. Best car chase, race. Is there a... There's, there's the car where Maggie Q learned to drive for this movie. She drives here, but I don't think there's really a car chase. Is there?
2: Um. Or is there...
0: Why? I would it's mean, the helicopter chase, I think. but The helicopter chase is pretty badass. All right, so maybe I have to change it to the best vehicle chase race.
2: Because I think the car chase is cool. Oh,
0: man, I, I don't know
2: that I would go out of my way to recommend that. The, the helicopter chase is
0: pretty badass, though. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We also are going to have another helicopter chase in Fallout, right, where he's Oh, Jesus Christ. And we, already,
1: and we already had one in the first movie where it chased the train. I can't believe that helicopters
0: are so big in this franchise. <laughs> best dance scene, I do not think he dances does he i don't think so he does Does he he does dance with michelle
2: monaghan at the house party but it's nothing impressive best
0: outfit wardrobe for cruise i don't think there's anything here that's particularly i mean philip seymour hoffman's suit but again that's that's kind of cheating i think
2: uh wait for ghost protocol that suits awesome
0: best sunglasses no i don't think he wore any no best death we have to mark it down here again Um, oh my god what is this? The third time? <laughs> De, uh, defibrillated, dies, and I, comes I'm, back I'm gonna to life. I'm going to
2: die unless you kill me is one of the best things I've ever heard ever.
0: Yes. So I, I do want to say that that line I'm going to nominate for
1: best line. Is there another actor in Hollywood that has died and come back to life so many times on camera? Like this is I like mean, the third fucking time that this has happened. No, 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 <laughs> Mike. It's,
0: it's more than that. Hold on. I gotta, I gotta write this down.
2: You, you mean not Boris Karloff or? Um...
1: Jason Voorhees. Exactly. Not,
0: not any like
1: horror related characters or actors playing characters and stuff like Tom Cruise in movies has, has literally died it's, and it's, come back to Mike, life. Mike, it's
0: happened seven times already. Oh my God. Where he's died in seven films where he wasn't actually dead. And I'm not, I'm not going to spoil. I mean, I guess I could spoil them. So spoilers. If you don't know, if well. you've not listened to every episode, <laughs> interview with the vampire twice, vanilla sky, twice, mission <laughs> impossible three, uh, mission Impossible two, where he's masked and he, but he, Tom Cruise, the no. actor, dies on screen. Right. You see him killed on screen. Yeah, and Far and Away. Counts. So it happened seven away. times over five movies.
1: Insane. Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, he's actually, he thinks he's Jesus in movies. It's crazy. He dies and comes back to life.
0: Best line, I did nominate what I mentioned earlier, what Dan just said. I have a charge in my head. I'm going to die unless you kill me. Mission Impossible 3, which I just yeah, love. Great, great line. Best freakout. Is there a freakout in here worthy of... Uh... Nominating, I
1: don't know. Doesn't he say, like, you're freaking out? Like, doesn't Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, say, like, oh, you're really freaking out right now or something when he's in the chair? With the Michelle Moynihan girl with the mask. I don't know. I guess it's not worthy enough because it's not like the movie stops and he
0: jumps on a couch
1: and he's, like, freaking
0: out or anything. (laughs) Best sex scene, no. Most athletic feet, do we want to say... Oh, I do want to say him jumping off a building on that wire in Shanghai. The Fulcrum. But also,
1: the amount that he must have had to run just for that shot or two or three shots when he's running through the street... You know, where he like jumps off the two buildings and he starts booking it like down the street, and he's like move, move, and he's on the phone and he's talking to Benji, running like to rescue that... Jules in Mission Impossible Three. Oh my god, I was getting. Oh
0: no, no, that. Hold on, sorry. We're gonna we're gonna put that in the next one. Um, that's in the oh, best okay, running okay. scene.
1: Oh, okay. oh right, they can't be two.
0: My running mind. to rescue Jules in Mission Impossible Three. So there we go. Best love story. Do we, I think Ethan. So we have Ethan and Naya in Mission Impossible Two. I think we gotta have Ethan and Jules in Mission. Yeah, Impossible 3. this is much more developed
2: the love story in this movie is the movie if it wasn't for his attachment to his wife and and his desire to have a a marriage and a a normal life then then he wouldn't have been we wouldn't have the movie
0: that we have
2: so i think that this is hands down mostly about the the love story that he has with his wife.
0: best ensemble cast i'm gonna say yes i think that we had been hinting at it Mm -hmm. for a while but I think the addition here of Benji, I think Maggie Q, I think Kerry Russell, I think bringing in Michelle Monaghan, especially adding in mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Billy Crudup, Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne, like this is yeah. this is great stacked. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing, best non-Cruise actor, male or female. We already have Ving Rhames as Luther in the entire franchise. Is there anybody else that we want to nominate? Do we want to say Philip Seymour Hoffman? Oh, we have him as Phil Parma. Yeah, right, probably. Yeah, I guess we gotta. So in Magnolia and Mission Impossible 3. Anybody else, male or female, we want to nominate here? I don't know if we should nominate. Like, I don't know that Michelle Monaghan has enough to do here yet, but we'll have to see in, in later movies if she establishes herself compared to, you know, Nicole Kidman or Diane Lane as Cherry Valance. This this female, like, it's all <laughs> sort of smaller roles. But yeah, I think uh, we, we will see. We will see. We'll get there. Uh, but yeah, there's a bunch of nominations here. Best Fight we have. Best Vehicle Chase Race. Best death, best line, most athletic feet, best running scene, best love story, best ensemble cast, and best non-Cruise actor, male. Plus the stuff that we nominated for the entire franchise. So again, for a movie that none of us were super crazy about, but all enjoyed, this is uh, it did pretty well. Yeah, and I guess in that regard, that. it's just a it's a good Tom Cruise movie, right? Because there's a lot of things that we keep mm-hmm. an eye out for that he does. So, but Dan, thank you so much for joining us here on Cruise Club once again to talk about this movie. You'll be back on our other Tom, Tom Club, the Hanks for the Memories podcast, in a couple of months to talk about the Green Mile. But thank you so much for joining us today on Cruise Club. Always a pleasure, Joey. Thanks for having me. And you, will let's see here. Are you going to be back on any more cruises? I don't think so. I think this might be your, your farewell to, to Cruise. we got a couple, at least, more Hanks for the Memories coming up. So go check out that. Or go to cageclub.me and search Dan Colon and find all the episodes that he has been on with me and Mike and other podcast as well especially on he's been sort of your resident horror expert over on third times a charm so there's a bunch of episodes That's over right. there but go to cageclubme slash shows poke around or just go to facebook.com slash cage club or at cage club pod on twitter and instagram email us run at cage come back next week on hanks from the memories on fridays are for fun for saving private ryan come back in two weeks oh we're, we're sort of slowing it down here a little bit maybe not i don't know what this movie's about one of the very few that we have left that I have not seen, Mike, but Lions for Lambs. Wait,
2: what? Oh, I've seen Didn't that. No, this one. I've seen that one.
0: But, uh, yeah, that's one of the very few Tom Cruise movies that are left that I have not seen, so that's going to be very exciting, I guess, if for that regard alone, in two weeks. Go to CageClub.me slash shows, poke around close to 1,400 episodes, including 28 now of Cruise Club. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Dan Colon, and we'll see you next time right here on Cruise Club.